It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine. Hear about Christmas in Kyiv and living under constant threat of bombing, and catch up with our US editor Tony Diver as US politics returns after the holiday season. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 9th of January, one year and 319 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Jay Barnes, US editor Tony Diver, Telegraph contributor and former tank commander Hamish Gibraltar gordon and our guest is Ukrainian journalist Margot Gontar calling in from Kyiv. Dom and Francis are away for a few days on a training programme. Do not worry, they will return. I started by summing up the latest news from across Ukraine. Let's start today then with the latest news from Ukraine. There's been another Ukrainian strike deep behind the front lines in Russia itself. Two Ukrainian drones have struck a Russian fuel plant in the city of Oryol, 137 miles from the border. This comes from Andrei Klitschkov, the regional governor in Russia, who said on Telegram that a fire caused by the drone attack is under full control. He did not disclose if there had been any deaths, injuries or damage in the attack. The 112 Telegram channel said two people were injured by broken window glass. So another example there of Ukraine striking deep into Russia itself, far, far behind the front lines. Linked to that, then, an interesting update from Britain's Ministry of Defence, who say that Russia's anti-air defences are increasingly ineffective. In its latest defence intelligence briefing, the MOD said Ukrainian air attacks on occupied Crimea have, quote, highly likely degraded the awareness and coverage of Russian air defences. This once again demonstrates the ineffectiveness of Russian air defences in protecting key locations, despite the enhanced preparedness. The MOD added that the scale of Russian missile strikes across Ukraine on Monday, that's the the series of strikes in which several different cities were targeted, is, quote, likely indicative of the level of success achieved by the Ukrainian attacks. However, moving away from the MOD, the Ukrainian armed forces are starting to struggle in other respects. So the Institute for the Study of War, the American-based think tank, has said that Ukraine is struggling to overcome shortages in artillery shells and has insufficient electronic warfare capabilities. It cited articles in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times which reported that Ukrainian soldiers are having to use cheap first-person view, those are the FPV drones, instead of artillery, and that Russia has a clear advantage in electronic warfare. So why does this matter? Well, FPV drones are not capable of striking Russian field fortification as effectively as artillery can, the ISW said, while Russia's EW advantage enables it to disrupt missile and drone attacks better than Ukraine. 
quite a simple reason why drones are usually not able to carry as large a payload as missiles or uh, as artillery shells, so it simply can destroy less. Also linked to this, Ukraine's Air Force has said that it has a deficit of anti-aircraft missiles after an uptick in Russian rocket and drone attacks over recent weeks. This comes from Yuri Inyat, an Air Force spokesman who told Ukrainian television, quote, Ukraine has spent a considerable reserve on those three attacks that took place. It is clear that there is a deficit of anti-aircraft guided missiles. On this, the ISW also weighs in. I'll just read out what they've written. Western provisions of air defence systems and missiles remain crucial for Ukraine as Russian forces attempt to adapt to current Ukrainian air defence capabilities and as Ukraine develops its defence industrial base. That's they call, they call it the DIB. The ISW assessed that Russian and Ukrainian forces are currently engaged in a tactical and technological offensive-defensive race wherein both sides are constantly experimenting and adapting their long-range strikes and air defences. The continued and increased Western provision of air defence systems and missiles to Ukraine is crucial as Russian forces continue to experiment with new ways to penetrate Ukrainian air defences. The inclusion of Western-provided air defence systems into Ukraine's air defence umbrella has been essential to Ukraine's ability to defend against Russian missiles, particularly ballistic missiles. Moving away then from uh, ammunition and missiles, uh, there have been further strikes this morning on Belgorod, the Russian city over the border from Kharkiv. Three people were wounded in what they call Ukrainian strikes. This is from the regional governor, Vasislav Gladkov, who said that three civilians suffered shrapnel injuries and remained in intensive care after 10 missiles were fired on the city. Mr. Gladkov added that four residential buildings, four trucks and three cars were damaged after the attacks. The Kremlin, in response, has vowed to do everything it can to stop repeated Ukrainian missile strikes on Belgorod. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters, of course our military will continue to do everything in order to minimise the danger at first and then eliminate it entirely. There's another story that I'll just run through quickly before we go to Joe Barnes uh, from Belgorod. This is that Russia has actually evacuated 300 people from the city because of the increasingly frequent Ukrainian attacks. This is the largest evacuation from a major Russian city since the war began. Vasislav Gladkov, the original governor who we cited earlier, said some 300 former Belgorod residents are now being housed in temporary accommodation in the towns of Stary Oskol, Gubkin and the Korchansky district. So that's certainly a story to watch in Russia and it'll be interesting to see how that story is received in uh, the news and the Kremlin sympathetic press. Well, let's go now to Joe Barnes. Joe, you've been looking at the diplomatic and political updates. What can you tell us? Yeah, hi folks. Let's take a look at sort of the politics and diplomatic slant on this at the moment. And we go to Dimitro Kaleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, who's given an interview to the Spanish newspaper El País. And he, in this interview, has said the West is not putting pressure on Kyiv to start ceasefire negotiations with Russia. So to slightly step back from that, you would have noticed a lot of reporting in the last few months about the idea that Washington, Germany and other sort of big players in this, they are the two main players because they're Ukraine's biggest donors, individual donors, that is, are putting pressure apparently on Ukraine to basically go to the negotiating table because this idea of we are supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes isn't actually for as long as it takes. So Dmitry Kleber has addressed this, and in, he told El Pais, our allies are not asking us to start talks with Russia in order to freeze the war, neither when we meet Western delegations nor at closed meetings. Those who suggest a frozen conflict argue that they are acting in the best interest of Ukraine and the world, but in reality they are helping Vladimir Putin and ignoring what today's Russia is. So basically what he's saying is if you implement a ceasefire, 
and freeze it at the current lines. One, Russia would have ample time to start reconstructing its military while not having to go on offensives or defensive manoeuvres. And two, as happened after the 2014 uh, lines were drawn, Russia and Russian proxies would likely just ignore the ceasefire and continue firing across those de-escalation lines, as they were called then. So, yes, yeah, interesting that Dmitry Glaber is basically just dismissing outright. And this is something that you hear from a lot of Ukrainian officials about reporting on Western calls for ceasefires. Apparently, there's no pressure on them, but they would like to say that. But who really knows is the answer. We've tried to get to the bottom of these stories as much as possible. Um, and then... Kaleba also told El Pais that there are £235 billion, that's $300 billion of Russian assets that have been frozen in Europe since the war began. And that would cover 80% of the costs of Ukraine's reconstruction. So lots of those are, are funds that are frozen by a clearinghouse in Belgium, in Brussels, actually, Euroclear. And European and Western officials are looking at ways of using maybe profits from those funds while there are greater calls for confiscation of them. So this is what Kaleba had to say. It will happen 100%. The question is, to what extent will it happen? Because there are three elements to it. The frozen assets themselves, the revenues on the assets, and the taxations on those revenues. So basically what he's saying is there are three streams that you can look at. You could look at confiscating all of Russia's frozen assets. You could look at targeting just the interest made on those assets while they're frozen because basically as they're frozen the government freezing them becomes the sort of the the keeper and looker after of those assets um while they're still earning revenues and then he mentions taxation so those revenues would be subject interest revenues would be subject to taxation so potentially they could be used to fund ukraine's reconstruction and kaleba goes on but it will happen because it makes sense that russia should pay and there are enough frozen assets to tackle the reconstruction of Ukraine. We estimate that a total amount of frozen assets is equivalent to more than 80% of our reconstruction demand. We can rebuild schools, we can rebuild hospitals, we can rebuild infrastructure at the expense of the country that destroyed it. So interestingly, it's one of the big things Ukraine are pushing for. We heard from Kira Rudik yesterday speaking a lot on this. And there are examples of it. So Iraqi government funds, I think it was about, I think about 50, billion maybe i numbers aren't 100% sure but after the first gulf war iraqi government funds that were held overseas were confiscated and they were given partly to kuwait and around sort of nine or ten a dozen or so countries that border that area basically to pay for the impact of iraq's invasion of kuwait so it, there is international president and the g7 eu i'm sure the us uk are all working very closely on this project and trying to find out ways of taking if it be the entire Russian state run funds frozen abroad or just the profits from them in interest payments, they're looking at ways to do that. Then we go over to a corruption story, which has seemingly blighted Ukraine over many years. And it's something that Zelensky's government is very keen to address, given its sort of ambitions to join the EU, NATO, etc. So Ukraine has uncovered more than 200 million. That's 260 that's £200 million, pounds, $260 million in defence procurement corruption in the last four months. And that is according to Rustam Umarov, the country's defence minister. One of the priorities of the Ministry of Defence team is to clean the system from unscrupulous participants inside the institutions and outside, he wrote in a statement posted onto his Facebook page on Monday. 
We are actively on this in close collaboration with law enforcement agencies. We are eradicating corruption. The system resists, but we will overcome it. Look, that's one reason that Mr. Umarov is in the job. There was deemed to be lots of sort of corruption within the defence ministry and the uh, the pre predecessor didn't do enough to address it as seen despite being well loved and that was Alexei Reznikov who we're talking about there so one thing that Alexei Reznikov was dismissed by President Zelensky in September were two sort of scandals one was the defense ministry buying food supplies and low quality winter jackets for inflated prices so Mr Umarov's remarks come on the same day that a Vyashev Shapalov, who is the former Deputy Defence Minister, was charged with embezzlement after the ministry purchased around £20 million, that's $25 million, of unusable body armour. Okay, and then let's go to Europe, where we have some interesting revelations and sort of news. So Poland has been accused of obstructing an investigation into blowing the blowing up of the Nord Stream gas pipeline in September 2022. The Wall Street Journal, the American newspaper, has reported that the Polish government has been hesitant about providing information to investigators and it has withheld evidence. It cited sources in the investigation who also admitted to having no evidence that Poland was involved in the explosions in the Baltic Sea. So you'll, you'll remember Nord Stream, the so Nord Stream 1 and 2 were basically put out of operations. Three of the four pipelines were destroyed in a what was described as a as an explosive attack by sort of NATO, the US, other Western types. There's been lots of rumour and suspicion around it. So, so a Ukrainian element to it, apparently a Ukrainian businessman, myself and Roland Oliphant reported, as he was named locally, we didn't name him in Ukraine, but so a prominent businessman was behind the plan, which was carried out by Ukrainian operatives, apparently. There's lots of sort of stories, but then lots of people may point to Russia destroying it, or even I've heard, well, and the Russians like to say this, the UK was the ones behind the explosion. And then I think we should go to funding for Ukraine because there is some interesting revelations from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who has said the majority of European Union states and their commitments to military funding for Ukraine are too small. He demanded that European Union officials produce a list of all the planned military aid from the bloc's 27 member states be produced. And that will likely pile on pressure to the likes of Paris, Rome and Madrid and basically encourage them to start pulling their weight with contributions to Kyiv's war efforts. So Europe has been under escalating pressure from the United States, which is the Ukraine's single largest country donor, to take over the mantle for supporting Ukraine's war effort. So Mr. Schultz told reporters that while Berlin is planning to double its military aid to Ukraine to 8 billion euros this year. This alone will not be enough to guarantee Ukraine's security in the long term. So Mr. Schultz added, I therefore call on our allies in the European Union to step up their efforts in support of Ukraine. The arms deliveries for Ukraine planned so far by the majority of EU member states are by all means too small. So basically, by making this list, Olaf Schultz, and to be fair, Germany's pulling pretty impressive numbers and in terms of pulling its weight. So basically, he has said, look, we European countries may be donating weapons to Ukraine, but we are not aware of them. So we need this list. And he wants this list published 
or made available to EU leaders in time for the February 1st emergency summit where EU leaders will discuss the stalled 50 billion euro financial support package for Ukraine. Um, the reason that I say why this will put pressure on France, Italy and Spain, they are the EU's second, third and fourth largest economies behind Germany, but they have been seen and deemed to be vastly underperforming in terms of their bilateral support for Ukraine. So whereas Germany has promised and donated a total of 17 billion euros since the start of the full-scale invasion. France has only donated 544 million, Italy 691 million, and Spain 348 million, and that's according to the Kiel Institute, that's a German think tank that runs a tracker on these sorts of things. So yet there's sort of a vast disparity between the EU's biggest states. I'm sure France uh, Italy and Spain will argue that they contribute to the EU's what's known as the European Peace Facility, which has been a fund that's dispersed about three and a half billion euros to member states to help fund weapons for Ukraine, basically pays for things that were sent over. But they're not doing a lot on the bilateral fronts on their own, which isn't enough. And we will, we must remember that Germany pays for about a quarter of that EPF, as well as its own bilateral uh Commitment. So yeah, that's just interesting at a time when lots of European countries, including Britain, Britain still hasn't announced what what it's going to do beyond March, when the current funding of about two point three billion pounds a year expires. So yeah, interesting revelations on that front, and it's Germany trying to uh, basically encourage other European countries to pull their weight because it is doing quite a lot, even if there are questions over whether the Taurus weapons or bigger weapons that are available in. Germany's arsenal can be sent to Ukraine. Okay, and then back to Russia. And I will start with uh, well, the last of my pieces. A Russian rapper who was jailed for attending, and I quote in bunny comment quotes, almost naked party wearing only a sock, was taken to a military enlistment centre, be called up, but later failed the fitness test, it has been reported. So Vasio, whose real name is Nikolai Vasilev, was one of the celebrities and socialites at the Moscow party that we've reported on. I believe it was James Kilner reported on December 20th. And the party caused quite a stir of controversy, falling foul of Vladimir Putin's crackdown on decadence and gay rights. So Vasio was jailed on December 22nd for 15 days and fined 200,000 rubles. It's about £1,700. After being charged for with spreading propaganda about non-traditional sexual relations. So local media have reported on Friday, the day he was due for release, that Mr. Vasilev was taken to his military enlistment centre and handed call-up papers, but he later swore at police officers and was duly rearrested on charges of petty hooliganism. He has yet to appear in court face charges. The papers, uh, say new local papers, said he will now also not be called up to fight in Ukraine after failing the fitness test. And I'll stop there, Dave. Thank you very much, Joe, for that. Well, we'll come to Tony and Hamish later, but let's go to Ukraine now. Marco Gonta, thank you so much for joining us again. In my opening sort of summation of the news in Ukraine at the moment, one of the things we've talked about for a few days now is the apparent air defence deficit. <clears throat> That's to say Ukraine starting to run out of some of the missiles and capabilities it needs to take down incoming Russian missile fire. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing on the ground and what life has been like for you over the holiday season? Thank you for inviting me and for having me, David. I would say it's 
especially, you know, when you need to explain this to people who never experienced war at all. So it might, it seems, it continues to feel bizarre. But as for, since, you know, uh, I'm in Kiev. So Kiev is, you feel that like, Kiev is better protected than last winter, I would say this. But in the same time, what's happening right now is that when the attacks do happen, they are just on a bigger scale. You probably discussed it earlier that the attack on January the 2nd is believed to be one of the most bigger scale combined missile attack. And we, we had almost 100 like different air targets hitting that's that's the problem that we need to deal with at the moment definitely since we are dealing with the enemy of such scale definitely ukraine continues to be in need of support of our international allies and in terms of usual support as supplies as civilians on the ground but also of course weapons but as for, you know, your question is how it feels in the city. My friend told me and like we, we met for coffee and he told me something like last winter it was worse, but it was better. <laughs> it might sound bizarre, but what, what we mean by that is actually on the ground, well, especially in Kiev. And I need to stress here that Kiev like it is, feels obviously differently than Mykolaiv region, for example. But we do have, for example, the internet working, the, the heating working. We don't have as much blackouts. But in a, in the same, so, so you have the feeling that life kind of goes on. But in the same time, you have these major scale attacks. And we have reports that Russia might be preparing more to come. But obviously, if you look at what's happening in the south and in the east of the country, I'm talking here Kharkiv, uh, Kharkiv region, I'm talking here Mykolaiv region, so those areas that are easier for Russia to you know, reach from the occupied territories and from the next Crimea and from, from Russia territory directly. So these areas, you probably have seen that as well, that they are in constant, under constant, sometimes everyday attack. And the devastation happening is really, I don't, I don't have words for that anymore, but it's really tragic. But that's, I guess, what the, the feeling we would get. But definitely as we go on and as I was, you know, listening to you discussing the support that EU, you know, and Western allies and the US have for Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine relies heavily and will rely heavily in this foreseeable future for the support. And as we all know by now, war is a very expensive endeavor. So unfortunately, even though Ukraine obviously is trying to adjust and scale up the the way that we react to Russian attacks, Russia is scaling up as well. Margot, can I ask, we reported that, of course, there's a bit of a cultural shift this year over Christmas with Ukraine, with many people celebrating Christmas on the 25th of December, like in the, in the Western tradition, rather than following the Orthodox dating for Christmas. Is this something you've seen in the city? Is this something that you know people have been doing? And, and did this, I mean, to, to what extent was this a, a sort of a news release from the president? And to what extent was this something that people were really living? Yeah, I wanted to address that. Thank you for asking. It, this is actually an interesting for me as well, since before that, my family would celebrate the Christmas on the 6th or 7th of January, which is like traditional Orthodox style. 
uh, believed to be. But this year, me and my family, and actually everybody I know, to be honest, so I know not no person that actually was talking about or wanted to celebrate it on January the 6th. So everybody I knew celebrated it on 25th of December. And like we had many talks, you know, online before that in different media, like when media would, were explaining why it's happening. So we had, I would say, a certain communication about that. And explanation was that actually not the new style. It's rather like getting back to the old style since it's like the question of calendars, etc. So, so it's like that Christ was born just there was just one day when he was born but we all understand that it's about getting further from russia and like i think that's the way that ukrainians mostly see it so it wasn't it wasn't so much i think for ukrainians especially like for for my friends i think and for people around me as to that we joining west in this as rather like we're getting we're separating from this russian imposed tradition and it was interesting to see that everybody was, you know, getting along with that. It was a bit weird feeling for me personally, on a personal level, because usually we would have New Year's first and, uh, you know, Christmas later with New Year's being, you know, friendly and like family, like events and Christmas being fully family. So we have this vice versa thing and it feels like small, but it like shifts the perception. And I think I now understand when people in the West celebrate New Year's a bit less <laughs> because before that you have Christmas. But yeah, but it was, uh, it was a bit different, but it was nice for me. I think it was interesting to see how, Everybody, you know, jumped on the board with this. So I haven't seen any real discomfort or people arguing about that. So it wasn't so much complying as it was really people just getting on board with the idea and enjoying it. And we had like the things that we usually would have around the six, the seven. So all this carol or some sorry. So kolatniki and shedrivki. So people would go sing in costumes uh, with different like theatrical pieces. We all had it like around the December 25th. So we had the whole thing switched to this a bit of new dates. And I think for me, like for me, I feel for sure, but I think for everybody I talk to, it feels more like getting back to the roots. That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Marco. Just one more question from me. Over the course of last year, we spoke about the problem of insufficient numbers of bomb shelters in Kiev. Uh, It's a story that crops up, I think, towards the end of the summer and again in the autumn. What's your sense of that at the moment? And may I ask what you do now when the air raid alarm sounds, especially as, as we know that more missiles are getting through? Thanks. The thing with bomb shelters is I think it's not so much that there is insufficient number. We have a lot of them. And also we have the metro, the subway, which is... Like we have a number of stations and it's quite big and it's deep and it's super safe. You feel super protected there, but you still need to get there. Kiev is quite a big city and not only you need to get there, so it might take you, depending on where you are, it might be 20 minutes walking or 20 minutes driving just to get there. But also, I would say the, the bigger problem would be if you're caught with missile attack and you're, just, you're at home and you caught like kind of in the middle of it. So like 
Honestly, what happened on January the 2nd, for example, the, the, that big attack I mentioned. So I think I woke up a bit, like a few minutes before the missile attack actually happened. So I slept through the airless siren alert. And so that's it. I had only time, you know, to get dressed and get in a what we, ha- what we call between two walls. So it's kind of when you're further from the windows and you're protected by two walls, that's the idea. So I just, basically it's a hallway. So I got in the hallway and that was it. I could potentially probably walk out of the building and walk up to the shelter. There are several in my area, but I honestly don't feel comfortable walking outside when the when you have explosions everywhere and when you have attack and going. It really depends on people. I think, in a way, there are two types of people: those who feel comfortable walking around, uh, you know, outside during the attack, and those who feel more protected in a building, like somewhere either it's underground or in upper ground, but just you know inside of the building and. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm more of the second type. So so I think that's the whole problem like in practice. But I think we're getting a bit better with the setting up more, I would say more effective shelters because technically just basements, we have tons of them. But those that you feel comfortable to be at for a longer time, like I've seen more of them being set up. But you just also need to understand that's a good idea in theory. But when you have Russian MiG 31K, getting taken off like that can be there for hours and it might not even attack you but just be there for drills and for the sheer torture of torturing you with the silence and or you will have drones after that or before that or we have other jets the 222 jets that actually can like usually will attack with missiles if you have that throughout the day like three four air tyrants in a day, some of which, you know, some of which will lead to attacks, some of which won't. And it will happen, like you will have it every day for two years. At some point, you have a choice. You either, every time it happens, go to bomb shelter and you sit there, or you go go on with your life. But yeah, you're basically playing, you're risking there. You don't know what's going to happen. Or you're trying to see from your life experience whether the area you are at often attacked or not. Like whether it's actually risky just to be there where you are or not. And this is the how the brain adjusts. In a way, I think for some, maybe it's more comfortable not to go to shelters so much if, they, if there is no direct danger, because that's the way how brain protects them. So they... So as, as if there is no war. So that's, I think, the whole... It's not, like, connected to the problem of bomb shelters, but I think it's kind of, like, trying to explain the whole thing around them. It's not just the question of you being underground or fully protected. It's kind of, like, how do you live your life when it's happening with you for two years? And I'm, I'm afraid to say we're probably going to see that happening for some time and how do you incorporate protecting your life but in the same time not going mad and trying to sustain some kind of resemblance of you know life and still protecting yourself the answer will differ for many people i i have people telling me that they have this whole system like 
what they do and how far they go in protecting themselves. I mean, like go into the shelter actually, in which types of Russian attacks. And it's it's amazing to see how human brain can adjust and what you know how what lengths it's going to do that. But yeah, I think the thing that can look for people from the West, people outside of war context, the thing that can look ludicrous and maybe too risky and that people are not protecting their lives. It really, you need to understand the whole context of what's happening on the ground. Well, Marco, thank you so much for joining us. Do stay and we'll hear your final thoughts at the end of the episode. But thank you very much for giving us that update on your life and experience in Kiev at the moment. Tony Diver from Kiev in Ukraine to Washington, D.C. in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony Diver, our U.S. editor. What does the agenda look like for discussions on Ukraine? What does that look like in Washington at the moment? Well, David, I've been on this podcast several times talking about the talks uh, going on between the White House and Senate Republicans over how to get this $61 billion package of USAID through for Ukraine. I'm sorry to report that uh, it looks like the discussions have stalled again. The Senate's just come back from its Christmas break and some of its negotiators have been in conversation with the White House in the recent days talking about how they might be able to get some sort of deal through. As I said last time we spoke, the main holdup at the moment is that the Republicans are demanding some pretty significant concessions from the White House on domestic border policy as the price of their support for this funding package for Ukraine. So we're in a slightly strange situation, as we often are with these sorts of congressional deals, where one thing is being swapped for something that's completely different. There's no obvious link between the uh, border patrols going on in the southern United States and these foreign aid packages, which also include money for Israel and for Taiwan, but such as the way that these things work. So the latest is that the Republicans are demanding an end to what is known as the Presidential Parole Authority, which is a slightly complicated authority that the White House has, but basically it allows the president to admit asylum seekers into the US under on a sort of discretionary basis. So outside of the normal asylum system, the president can say, well, for humanitarian reasons, we think that these asylum seekers from Venezuela or wherever they are who are coming over the southern US border from Mexico should be allowed into the US. And Republicans, including Donald Trump, but also lots of Republicans who are in the Senate think that power that the White House holds should be either severely restricted or it should be ended altogether. And that that would be, they think that that would get us some way to solving the problems that the US is facing with migrants coming over its southern border. So that is the big sort of negotiating piece that uh, Republicans have put forward. The White House, unsurprisingly, is not too keen to give up that power. The White House says that that's not on the table, that's not something they'll negotiate on. And so we've reached yet again a bit of an impasse on these talks. It's all a little bit complicated, but at the moment we've basically got both the Senate and the House uh, Republicans against the idea of giving more funding to Ukraine without these concessions. Previously when we've discussed this, we've had the Senate being cautiously supportive of giving more money to Ukraine, but the House against. We're now in a position where both Republicans in the Senate and in the House are against that, but you've got sort of harder line Republicans in the House who are even less likely to go for a deal than those in the Senate. So what we're looking at really, I mean to sort of translate all of that into normal speak, what we're looking at probably is quite a lot longer on these negotiations, potentially some kind of interim deal agreed with the Senate, which then has to be put to the House 
Uh, and it may be, it's reported this morning, maybe the White House is holding this asylum power back in its negotiating strategy so that it could then make a later concession to House Republicans. But really, at the moment, it's all looking up in the air. And um, we don't look particularly close to some kind of deal being signed. Um, in terms of that, what that means on the ground, um, you know, we, we did a story over the weekend, which was about the impact that all of this is having on Ukraine. Basically, the amount of money that the US president can draw down and the weapon stockpiles that the US president can draw down in order to send to Ukraine has now been exhausted. The way that it works is that the president's allowed to take existing stockpiles of US weapons and send them to Ukraine, which are then backfilled by domestic weapons manufacturing in the US. But that all has to be agreed as part of a budget with Congress. And basically, Congress gives the president a pot of money, theoretical money, which can then be drawn down over a long period. That pot of money is now empty, which means that Joe Biden can't send any more of these domestic US weapons over to Ukraine without an additional funding deal from Congress. So that has a pretty obvious impact on the ground. It means that the sorts of weapons that the US is supplying and the sorts of weapons that only the US can supply, which includes some long range missile capabilities some restocking of those defensive batteries that were given over to Ukraine earlier in the war, the sorts of batteries which are trying to keep Ukrainian cities safe from the Russian winter bombardment, all of that is now at risk. And I, I spoke to one analyst who said that Ukraine is now in a serious position of having to choose which targets it defends in Ukraine because it just doesn't have the ammunition to defend all of them. So we are in a position where, where President Zelensky and his military commanders are going to have to say, well, look, we'll allow this train station or that power station or whatever to be hit by Russia because we need to protect our major cities. And that will obviously have a pretty severe impact on critical national infrastructure in Ukraine and on potentially on the the country's warfighting effort going forward. So it's the White House has been saying for the last couple of months that we're in a last chance saloon to get this deal through, but it seems that Republicans are in no great rush to sign something until they can get these major border concessions, which they've been after for some time. Well, some fairly grim news then from Washington, Tony. You said at the moment it's all up in the air, the discussions are ongoing. So do we have any sense at all on a time frame for this? Well, we're a bit closer than we were before Christmas in the sense that it seems that the battle lines have been drawn between the Senate Republicans and the White House. We're now talking about specific demands that are on the table. When we last spoke before Christmas, all we were really getting out of the negotiators was that there was a theoretical deal to be had, but there was so much detail to be worked through that it was basically impossible to give an update. We're now starting to see what the requests are from both sides. We're seeing, particularly from the Republican side, we're seeing talks about specific bits of policy, which include this parole authority that the president has. But, you know, at the moment, the White House says it's not going to move on that stuff. So we're still looking at weeks, I would say. Well, Tony, just one more question from me, unless Joe and Hamish have anything, and Margot have anything for you. But can we turn and look at the Republican race to be the presidential candidate? I mean, what, what updates do you have there for us? How is Ukraine being discussed there? What should we know out of the country? I'm just looking right now on my screen is Nikki Haley's uh, tweet, no cash for Ukraine, new troops on the ground, but we should give them the weapons they need to defend their sovereign country. How do you see the issue of Ukraine and support for Ukraine unfolding in the Republican race? Well, yeah, you're right. And the pretty strong stuff there from Nikki Haley. And concerningly, for those who want to send more weapons and support to Ukraine, she's actually one of the most supportive of the candidates who are running. But yeah, we're, we're in the final days now until the Iowa caucus, which takes place on the 15th next week. And it is something which is coming up on the campaign trail. It's not 
a huge domestic issue, I have to say. It's not something that people are talking about all the time. It's probably not something which worries a lot of Republican voters too much, but it's certainly become another one of these issues which is parceled up into the broad debate over whether America should be a sort of isolationist country that looks after itself first or whether it should be a global power that seeks to fight for justice and humanitarian causes around the world. That is a general theme of the Republican race, and we have seen some discussion of it there. I mean, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who were the first and second place Republican primary candidates in the polls at the moment, have both been pretty anti-sending, well, very anti-sending anymore, support to Ukraine. And we are starting to see uh, some of that rhetoric come through from Nikki Haley as well, who was the third place candidate, as you say. So yeah, it, it is an issue that's coming up. But again, it's pretty grim news for those people who, who want to send more support to Ukraine. Oh, sorry, please, Margaret, please. Yeah, if I may, thank you very much, David, and thank you, Tony. Just a, a quick thing that possibly that we discussed with colleagues in Ukraine, but also like something from observations. I remember even during Trump presidency, like they, um, I remember the feeling and also like talking from people around the administration that even though there were one decision that were made, but also there were people but true, they were from previous administration, but they were still working around that to to continue with the decision that might be, you know, even conflicting in a way. So I think my question here is, even if, let's say, the there'll be the, so to speak, a mainstream, mainstream line may be less protective for Ukraine, is there a chance that the, the the other actors could be still continue supporting Ukraine in general. I know that a lot of, yeah, I think that will be my question. So is it final for Ukrainians to, if the candidate will not support Ukraine as much, if it's final or the American politics, uh, um, as we've seen, working in a way that we can still see some support for Ukraine? if it makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. That's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, regardless of who gets chosen as the Republican nominee in the summer, we still have the general election campaign to go. And if Joe Biden wins the second term, then we can expect to see more support for Ukraine than we would do under a Republican administration. But you're right, there is an interesting question about whether or not the kind of Washington consensus, the officials, the sort of institutions of the capital would continue to support Ukraine. I mean, it is very difficult to see how those people could do that under an administration that was very hostile towards sending more weapons and aid, partly just because of the mechanism I explained earlier that Congress has to approve this money to be drawn down by the president. And if Congress doesn't do that, or the president doesn't want to use it, then it won't happen. And there's also a very good piece, which I'd encourage people to go and read on the Telegraph website by my colleague, Rosina Saber, about what Trump is planning to do with the officials in Washington under a second term. And if we were to see a, a second Trump presidency, then we'd likely see the replacement of a lot of these people in institutions at the top of government who have this kind of consensus institutional view that America should be an outward looking open power that tries to aid countries like Ukraine. So actually, we might be in a position where a lot of those people that you describe, the sort of officials who have a more traditional view on America's role in the world, find themselves actually replaced by a lot more hardline Trump-supporting isolationists. And that then would obviously have a knock-on effect for future administrations as well. So I think for those who are concerned about Ukraine and, and want more weapons and aid to be sent, the Trump presidency really is the most disastrous because it, it would probably end up with a wholesale replacement of all of these people who, who are supported. 
Well, thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much, Mark, for your question. Excellent question. Let's finish today then by going to Hamish de Breton. Gordon, Hamish, thank you so much for joining us. So we've gone to Kiev, we've gone to Washington, now back to the UK. Hamish, we reported yesterday on these alleged, well, sort of Russian drones watching Ukrainian soldiers train in Germany. What's your take on this story? Yeah, thanks, David. I, I, I think this just does bear a little bit more more discussion. Just before I do that, I'm, call, call me a cynic, I just wonder how much Vasio had to pay to fail his medical. And earlier on, we were discussing drones, or you were discussing drones and morale of Ukraine soldiers on the front line being okay. Those of us who have fought in cold climates now is the most demanding type of environment to fight in, unless you have the right kit, the right training, food, etc., etc. It's incredibly difficult. So the only positive I can give to those Ukraine soldiers on the front line, if your morale's okay, the Russian morale will be absolutely rock bottom. But coming on to the drones, I know Joe wrote a piece on this as well yesterday. I think it is hugely significant. Let's think about it. It's potentially a hostile act. If true, I absolutely caveat everything I say, if true. And I think we've only seen it reported in Bilt and, and by a couple of German politicians. But these dro- had these drones been manned aircraft, been Russian fighter aircraft, surely we'd be in a very different position. If they are drones, they've either been operated by Russian special forces in Germany, or they've flown hundreds or thousands of miles from Russian territory and have been allowed to get on what they're doing. I think it's rather synonymous with the whole way that Russia and the West, NATO, is approaching this war. Russia, it is a total war. You discussed yesterday about Smirch, the counterintelligence organisation, which Bond kept under wraps for many years. But as Smirch emerges and develops, W07 has been retired long ago. We then look at ourselves, the UK, we're mothballing warships because we don't have the sailors to man them. Apparently, the officer training at Santos, which started yesterday, is short of numbers. And then we look at the actual ranges themselves in Germany, which I know very well. I, I'm assuming they're the Bergen-Hohner ranges north of Hanover, where generations of tank commanders have done their training. It's right next to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. It's also the place where Hitler viewed the training of his panzer divisions. In fact, in the middle of bergen is Hitler's bunker called the Hitlerhof. And myself and other generations of tank commanders have taken chips off it with firing tank rounds when people weren't looking. But it is potentially leading to an Article 5. Article 5 is where where a NATO country is attacked, which means that NATO gets all in. If these drones are big drones, they could possibly be armed. So I think it's a a bit of a wake-up call to NATO. If we do nothing, NATO does nothing and lets it go on. What does Putin think? I think Putin is... His whole assumption at the very beginning of this, 24th of February 2022, was that NATO and the West wouldn't get involved. So to me, I think this is hugely significant. And by NATO stepping back rather than stepping forward, I think axiomatically it makes more war more likely. And we discussed a few weeks ago the um, Polish security minister's view that 
if Ukraine doesn't prevail, then within three years, NATO could well be at war with Russia. So I think this is just another thing. And although it seems insignificant, those drones over Germany, if true, are a hugely significant act. And hopefully NATO will do something about it. Well, thank you very much, Hamish. We'll come back to you, of course, for your final thoughts. We've lost Tony. I think he's had to run off and get started on some US stories in Washington. It's still the morning over there, of course. But Joe Barnes, what will you be looking at? Forward, I think we are looking at, I'm sorry, I'm writing a piece about sort of the funding in Europe and the sort of the race to replace the US funding that's dried up. What is the UK going to be doing? Because the UK's funding runs out in March. There's still question marks over it. Most people you speak to say, oh, it's okay, we'll probably announce two and a half billion, two, 2.3 billion pounds worth of fund military aid for Ukraine um, when the pot runs out in March. But yeah, it's mainly looking at the funding and looking at how Europe is going to get over the hurdle of Hungary um, up until the 1st of February when EU leaders convene for their emergency summit on that. Um, but I think for my final thoughts, I'd just like to... Um, give a shout out to a piece that Roland Oliphant wrote it's in today's newspapers online. Um, and it's about the death of an award-winning poet turned Ukrainian soldier. So Maxim Kristof, um, whose first solo anthology was listed as one of the top Ukrainian poetry publications by Ukraine Pen last year. He died in the Kharkiv region on Sunday, aged 33. I really recommend going online and reading that. We published, we went some of our sources and contacts and fixers in ukraine and got them to help us translate his last poem which is actually about the death of a ukrainian soldier that he wrote shortly before his death it's it's really sort of moving and touching piece i sort of urge you to go and write read sorry and it's it's just sort of these repetitive stories about how great young talented people are being eaten up by what is a, a pretty needless war caused by russia and it's not by it's not just talented people it's many ordinary people who shouldn't who basically have no place on the battlefield and should be uh, doing other things but they are fighting for the country so really moving piece i recommend everyone reads well thank you very much joe margot we'll come to you next what are your final thoughts from kiev um thank you david a lot of thoughts and first of all honestly just quickly wanted to thank all of you and for bringing up maxim and for for you covering Ukraine and bringing up the important question of continued support to Ukraine. I do agree with what with what we mentioned earlier about the uh, you know the if Ukraine falls the the whole I think that if Ukraine falls you Europe will be fighting this war next and that's I have a feeling honestly talking to my you know Western colleagues I'm doing that since 2014 and I I have this feeling a bit like uh if you remember game of thrones like Jon snow you know when he brought this white walker to the meeting of all these royal people if not i'm sorry for spoiling but but i think that's i think it's kind of feels like cliche i don't think that people believe me when when we say that i don't think that people believe us when we say that you don't need to support Ukraine, you know, because I don't know, it's a nice thing to do or because it's it's just a chivalrous or something is because you'll be next. But in the same time, I really remember how we were saying with my colleagues in 2014, in, in 2015, over the next years, we were trying to convey to our colleagues, to other Western journalists, to everywhere we went, we tried to 
really explain what Russia is and what Russia does. And I do remember my colleagues just shaking it off, smiling at me sometimes, telling me that I'm imagining things. And I remember how it all changed after Bucha, after Pin, and then I saw this look on their faces on the of the people I started to meet in the West. And I saw that now they understand. I really, really don't want to be I really don't want to be, you know, in a situation when I will see all these looks again after Ukraine falls. I really don't know what else we can say or do beside what we are already saying, that this is not just a question of people feeling good about themselves, that they support those in need. This is a direct, them directly supporting us, them, I'm sorry, through us. But that's just, the, I bound just to repeat that once again. Yes, I, Ukraine needs support. And this was discussed today a lot. And I do understand the risks with elections, with, with everything that can change. And I do understand the risks with people being tired from the war somewhere. But there is no other way to say that Ukraine needs support. And if Ukraine falls, not only... Europe will be fighting this war next, but also every territory that Russia will occupy, if it will occupy whole Ukraine, all these people, maybe not all, maybe some will flee. If you watched years and years, there is a grim idea how it can look like. If, but it, not only people will, will suffer, but also some of them won't be able to leave and they will join forcefully Russian army and this army will might fight Europe. So is this a grim picture? I do know. And I do feel that it often sounds imaginary to my colleagues, but I just, I think here I want to leave everyone who listens to me with the feeling that they thought, like felt on the time, on the day they learned about Bucha. And if they had any, any ideas that Russia is not that bad or the war is not that bad or this couldn't happen in this year in time. And remember how it changed after they saw the first photos of Bucha. And if nothing is done and if support doesn't continue, we could be, and I hope not, we, we can be in the situation like that again. So I just really hope that it doesn't happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margot. Do stay safe and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, would you like the very final words? Yes, thank you. Um, Tony covered the elections in the States coming up later this year. And of course, we have our own elections in this country as well. But the only genuine opposition politician in, in, in Russia, Alexei Navalny, has been sent to a P Arctic penal colony ahead of the so-called Russian elections coming up soon so that he can have no impact at all. So however desperate we think our politics might be in this country and elections in the US, that they are nothing to, to what is happening in Russia or potentially. And of course, Putin's election will have him win by 99%. But that is the match of what we're up against. Thanks. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. 
or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 